This is George Lynch, and you are listening to the George Lynch Hunting Podcast Show from Legendary Gear. The time is now, and the season is open to become your own legend. Hang with us as we talk all things hunting to keep you tipping toenails all year long. We've got you covered with hunting, strategy, tips, tactics, gear, and we'll even share some stories from the field and insights from the experts. We'll even cover waterfowl, turkey, deer, elk, bear, moose, and predator. Basically, if we can hunt it, we're going to talk about it. So listen in and subscribe to the George Lynch Hunting Podcast Show. Hey guys, how you doing out there? I know you all know that I'm pretty much the, the waterfowl guru expert, but a lot of you that know me pretty well know that whitetail is also a huge part of our lives. Um, I like whitetails for the fact that it's it's more of a personal thing to me. Waterfowl we love, and, and they're by the thousands, and they migrate and you know, guys like to hunt with three, four, five, usually hunt with multiple partners when you're waterfowl hunting. The cool thing about whitetail with me is that, especially in the later years of my life, I've come to where I'm kind of an individual whitetail. And I would say that that has been sparked by the later years in our life moving out to Iowa. A lot of you guys know that I'm originally from southern southeast Michigan. Michigan is a huge deer hunting state. The problem with Michigan is we had over a million gun hunters, I think three or 400,000 bow hunters. Um, heavily, I think it's one of the most licensed sold, deer hunting licensed sold states next to Pennsylvania or Wisconsin. So they're right up there. I know pretty much you ask anybody in Michigan that the November 15th, that there's a national holiday within businesses and schools. So <clears throat> that being and born and, and bred in us, the problem with the whitetail hunting in Michigan was limited areas to hunt and uh, the quality of deer, just because, you know, a year and a half buck, I think 67 or 73% at one time of the, of the whitetail shot and, and harvested in Michigan were year and a half or younger. So it, you know, basically takes three things of, of making and growing mature whitetails. It takes food, which Michigan has. It takes genetics, which pretty much a lot of states can have. But it takes the most important to me out of the three is time. You know, you can't pick the fruit before it's, it's ripe. And in Michigan, I, I believe that. I will say that those earlier years in Michigan actually helped qualify me to be the better deer hunter that I am today. Because, and I've made this statement before, that in Michigan, I believe that anybody who went out who legally, who had to obtain just normal property, who legally could kill a two-and-a-half-year-old whitetail buck every year with his bow and arrow, was an exceptional hunter. And um, to shoot anything above that made you extraordinary. And I believe that the, you know anywhere that you go hunting pressured whitetails, that is um, you know the key, the whole goal of anywhere. Whitetails... Do what whitetails are supposed to do when they're undisturbed. And they will, then you can follow the books and the magazine articles. But when hunting pressure dictates the, the survival mode of a whitetail, then a whitetail, to me, is probably one of the most adaptive animals on the planet. If you take that, I mean, there's been mature trophy whitetails shot in, in little backyard uh, thickets, potholes, areas. In fact, we used to look for those out-of-the-way places that you would never imagine 
a whitetail, a median between expressway, overpasses. I know when we lived in Monroe County years ago, Michigan, the hunting pressure, we didn't have the big woodlots. You had more of the marsh and fragmity areas. And man, those deer seemed to have trails. It looked like Vietnam when you hunted. It wasn't the normal big woods and swamp that a lot of people think of Michigan. But those deer learned to adapt to that with the open country and, and to the marsh grasses and, and to those areas that they used over underpasses of, of roads and that they would travel. In fact, I knew uh, a couple of individuals who were very successful and bow hunting, hunting these overpasses, catching bucks moving with traffic overhead. It, again, it's their adaptability. And I think that's what makes whitetails one of the most treasured animals today out there is uh, how they can uh, equip, uh, acclimate, and survive. So that being said, you know, Iowa, it was always on my hit list of states that you know, we came out here in the first earlier years of our business of the, in the waterfowl industry. We came out here and the waterfowl hunting was good. But through those relationships and my friendships with the people out here, uh, seeing a lot of the big bucks that were being killed. And I would say 15 and 20 years ago, it was a total different Iowa. Kind of the same thing what Illinois went through. Um, if you talk to the old timers, especially guys who were hunting Illinois in the, in the late 80s, early 90s, I'll tell you that Illinois was that hot spot until every hunting magazine that you picked up, every outdoor life, North American whitetail, whatever, had articles. Everybody wanted to go to Pike County, Illinois. Most Boone and Crockett, most Pope and Young animals, whatever, you know, it's all, they'll tell you the counties they come from. And there's still in Illinois, uh, are the areas that have land management, QDMA, um, they still harvest, you know, the, the whitetails, but that land is so far and few in between and pretty much owned by the wealthy who are managing these large tracts of land. So you used to hear guys say, well, move to Iowa because Iowa is what Illinois was 20 years ago. And um, like I said, Iowa is good, but I've noticed in out here in Iowa in the last, I've been here almost eight years. And I would probably say the, the, uh, the year was tough when we got out here because um, I noticed that my age structure of whitetails uh, wasn't what I thought it would be. I mean, we, uh, we had areas, we had trail cams, we put out areas, and, and to me, you know, if you want to see whitetails, you've got to apply to have food source, and they've got to have security. You've got to give those whitetails where they feel the security to come in, to relax, again, to act like whitetails. And we noticed that the, the age structure out here, I noticed that even with, with the bucks, we weren't seeing those four and five and a half and six and a half year old deer out here. And of course, through uh, with friendships and, and acquaintances through the Department of Natural Resources, um, you know, I learned throughout here that Iowa had a severe problem with um, EHD. And I would love to impress you and say what EHD stands for. But it's, it's something that is definitely not good. It's a, a deal, especially, I believe, when you have the dry uh, springs, when uh, the water sources are limited and the whitetails want to congregate to the certain water hole sources. But I believe that the CHD is, is transmitted through by a gnat who in, in these areas of water that they bite and then transfer it from one whitetail to another. 
2012, I believe, is what the the last year. I mean, the year that was the big. It set the record for the most deer kills. And in fact, I think if you go back, you can see the Drury's had specials where I mean, I think they had one special where they count they had, they found like 130 or 140 dead bucks on their property. Un- unbelievable. So you know that takes a few generations of whitetails out of your core area, out of the family group. That you know that devastation does take some time. Um, that's just like the devastation over hunting, and so you have to put up with the. Uh, you know, the act of God, we call it. And that's a lot of things we, we can't do anything about, but it's something that you have to live with. So 2012 was the record EHD season out here. And like I said, by 2016, I think 2012 was the worst. 2013 was the recorded second worst. If I want to get this right. I had this conversation two years ago with our local biologist because we had another stint in, in the few counties north of us um, Polk County and some other counties nearby suffered the HD again. So, you know, it's, it's, it's tough in your areas when you're trying to, you know, survive hunting season. You're, you're trying to survive uh, the hunting pressure. You're trying to survive uh, predation, car, deer and car collisions that people don't realize. Yeah, well, a lot of whitetails, you know, succumb to, to, to vehicles and, you know, the predation. And then, then you add hunting pressure. Then you act to act a god on top of that. So whitetail's got to a pretty tough road to hoe. And I think that's why I found in my heart the love of whitetails. Um, you know, with all that against them, they're still an amazing creature, God's creature, their inability, like I said, their ability, not inability, but their ability to adapt, to be able to, in the senses. I mean, to be able, I mean, a mature whitetail, to, to be able to smell a human quarter mile away or 200 yards away, be able to, to sniff uh, a urine from an animal to tell whether it's doe, buck, it, it can tell her breeding health of an animal, but just all this, the, these keen senses. And so that's, I think that's one of the deals that uh, I just had so much respect. And I think there's nothing cooler than seeing a big set of antlers on top of a, a whitetail come walking in and I do like to tell a story. I had a good friend. We won't mention names, but I had a great friend who was, who was a biologist and a waterfowl biologist. And he was always giving me heck about my uh, love for hunting whitetails. And he used to always kid me about, well, you know, you can't eat those, you can't eat those horns. And uh, I used to tease him. So well, it's always coming from someone who could put his antlers in a shoebox. But I always told him I never saw a pot roast look good hanging on my wall either. But I remember one time he called me up and he had a good whitetail. Of course, in Michigan, you could have baited. You can use bait and stuff. And, and I think it was during the, our late muzzleloading season. But in one of his hunting spots, he had saw this, I would say it was a 120 class deer, something here that would probably be a good, just a good two-year-old. And <clears throat> he was all excited when he called me and told me how he spotted this nice 10 point. And he was a little excited and he dropped the ball. He dropped his cap. He, by the time he got the muzzleloader loaded, he shot and he missed the animal. And he was still, I could tell that he was in an excited stage. And I told him, I said, hey, let me ask you this. I said, when's the last time a mallard duck come floating down in the hole? Had you so shook you couldn't load your gun. So I'm going to rest my case on that one right there. You can put your hat on that one. And uh, that's true. I mean, it's something about 
whitetails and, and that big buck for when I was a little kid, listening to those stories about buck fever and listening to my dad and my uncles talk about, you know, they saw this big buck coming out of the ridge and your heart pounding and you really cannot express that feeling unless you experienced it. The throat tightening and your hands sweating and you feel like you can hear your heart pounding out of your chest. It's like that day you got married. <laughs> the excitement. And that's what, and I, to this day, I've been hunting whitetails, I don't know, at least 40 plus years, at least. And I'm trying to say that without giving my age too much. And that feeling is still there. The only thing that has really seemed to gain is the, the knowledge and maybe a little more patient, definitely more patience that I've gained over the years, but still, man, you, the, the heart and, 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 and the, the soul, how good the soul feels when you see that mature whitetail. He comes in and he's chasing a doe or that early frosty morning, you know, the leaves are still frosting and you hear him crunching as he's coming stiff-legged and you can see that steam just popping out of that nose as he comes and your heart just pounding and he's chasing that doe or you're sitting there and you hear that deep, oh my goodness, it's just, and you know it's right behind you and, you know, you turn around and it could be uh, muy, muy grande stepping out. So... That is what instilled, and that's the, the feeling I have today about whitetails, and that's why today I'm so excited to do my first podcast on, on discussing whitetails. And um, we like to hunt a lot of different things, and we'll find that out through more podcasts, but uh, waterfowl and whitetails is, is, is definitely a big place in our heart. And um, so, you know, I'm kind of giving a description of uh, my experience, where I started, where I based a got my roots. Um, you know, I can remember um, as a kid, my father's one that got us instilled into the hunting at home. And, and But I can remember the deer hunting, We though we were from the farm country, the southern part of Michigan, I can remember that the only deer hunting that was done back then as a kid was that you had to go and um, to hunt the northern Michigan. And Ted Nugent made a, a good claim on this one time. You ever wonder what people consider North Michigan, the northern Michigan. What part of Michigan does it change from the farm country to we call, let's go up north. We're heading up north. Where are you deer hunting? We're heading up north. And um, we do a lot of, uh, we have in the past, and we still do a lot of business with Jay Sporting Goods out of uh, Clare and Gaylord, Michigan. And I used to always love, because it's a huge family tradition, hunting family that started that business, but they have posters and pictures of uh, early photos of the first deer hunting, um, you know, when we used to have to cross. And this was before the Mackinac Bridge, which was a bridge that connected the Lower Peninsula and Northern Peninsula together. It was a five-mile bridge. I know all the statistics because my dad used to tell us everything about the bridge when we crossed it every time as a kid's going up camping, you know. And we camped back then. There was no motels. It was camping. And we used to, I would just eat those stories up and think about that. And as a kid, listening to my dad talk about his experience, and of course, back then we had, there was no Facebook, social media. My dad had slides. He loved taking, and that was the big family get together. And we'd have a slide presentation of the following year deer hunt and stuff. And my dad was very good at recording family events. But remembering those days and standing there at Jay's and look at that poster, even before the bridge, you used to have to take a ferry to cross 
from the northern or yeah, the southern part of Michigan, the southern peninsula to the northern peninsula. And they would have photos where cars, and then we're talking in the 30s and 40s, with old Model A's and Model T's lined up miles waiting to, to get on the ferry to cross over to head out for the opening day of deer season. That is a heritage, my friend. That is, a, that's America. <laughs> and um, those are roots that, you know, I, it's still in, in me today. But I can remember that. And my dad, uh, you know, they were wearing the red wool and everything was wool back then. And nobody, that was before orange. I mean, you wore red and black plaid. You wore the red wool. Your woodsman's uh, skills were amazing. Um, any hunter who hunted the, the Upper Peninsula, and I, I, like I said, that's probably where I, my roots got started as savior. And then the biggest thing, we learned how to process our own game. We always sat at the, and, um, you know, we did our own processing, grinded our own meat, and I think it was a, it just gave you a little bit more f- a feeling of accomplishment, of being part of the hunt. Even make even the old guy who sat there and cut his rack and cut a piece of leather and made his own deer antlers on a plaque and put it up there, there was pride in that. That was kind of a uh, um, part of the deal, a part of being a seasoned whitetail hunter. And uh, so, you know, I'm just trying to give you a little description of, what, of the base of uh, how we started you know, those who've been in it for quite a while. So we, we talked about, you know, we move into Iowa, the excitement of coming here. Now, EHD did its damage here, but I would say I moved here, what was it, Diane, 2015? 2015. 2015, we moved here. 2015 was tough. 2016 was probably still to this day some of the best bucks that we I had uh, trail cams of that we kept. And, and today, guys, when I talk about a lot of things out there, that, and we'll get in talking about shed hunting, my thoughts on shed hunting, we'll talk about, you know, my number one time to scout is spring scouting, especially on new areas. But trail cams have played, when guys say, what do you think besides, you know, out there has made the big difference in whitetail hunting? And I'd say more in trophy whitetail hunting. And I'm without a doubt, hands down to me, was trail cams. And some of the most more successful whitetail hunters back in the day in Michigan, they relied on and they weren't shy. And a lot of the best uh, deer hunters I knew who had some of the best collection of whitetails were huge farmers who 24-7 were out there, out in the field um, and shining, uh, legally shining. Um, that's how they located big bucks. Today, we don't, there's no excuse for anyone to shine or harass animals at night, to, you know, because of the trail cams, they've made such a an imprint of being able to go out there and and some of y'all might have bad feelings on it. To me, I don't have. I mean, anything can be taken bad if you have no self control. Um, baiting, you know, I, I some guys get way bent off on the baiting deal, and I'm sitting here and. I kind of like Mark Drury and a lot of people, you know, what's the difference to someone who puts in food plots, who spends thousands of dollars, who has able the the cap the cap the capability of owning half a million dollar equipment and, and owning a million dollar track of land just so he can plant food crops. Well, that's that's not an even playing field for the whitetail either. 
But if you want to sit and someone who hunts over an apple tree or who puts a corn pile down compared to a hole, I mean, that guy in the late season, if he's got 10 acres of standing beans and standing corn, he's sitting on a gold mine. He's sitting, again, what we talked about, the food source. So I think people get bent out where you bait and show, oh, that's not right, that isn't legal. Well, it allows a person to be able to see animals. Uh, in Michigan, like I said, we baited. And I personally never shot the animal off a of bait. It allowed, uh, basically what we did is we tried to hold does in our area and it allowed me to be able to see, yes, I saw bucks. If I, now, if I was one of those guys who probably couldn't control and contain himself, that was all about numbers and wanted to whack and stack every antlered buck that walked in, hey, uh, you could. I mean, you could shine, you could, if you're a poacher, you're going to find a way to get them no matter what. If you're a guy out there who's, Given into, you know, he feels that, hey, I'm feeding the animals, I'm out there, I don't partake. I might not even shoot a buck in this woods. I might not even kill a buck off this farm this year. But I am out there and I'm feeding the whitetails. I'm getting to see animals in close proximity. And I'm able to, you know, with and be, um, I guess the words I'm looking at, that I am responsible. That I am responsible for my own actions. Not, uh, we, you know, we've always seemed to be a, a, a generation or, or a breed of people who want to blame if we do wrong. Well, it's got to be somebody else's fault. You know, we're not going to let people put bait out there because they're going to poach. Well, like I said, again, if you're a poacher, you don't need bait to poach. But um, it is a way of being able, like I said, setting cameras, watching and, and, and seeing what animals are in your area. And then watching these animals, it got to when I got in Iowa, man, you start putting trail cams out. Um, it was so awesome. You never did go and, and, and follow a buck. Um, I'll talk about my, my um, 2016, which was probably my first really successful um, year of shooting a big buck. It was in Iowa out here. But early in the season, I had two bucks spotted that... Um, now, and then to kind of give you this, this idea here, in Iowa, it isn't legal to bait. But uh, if you know the food sources, know your bedding areas, do your spring scouting ahead of time, have my stands uh, already set, not putting stands up in the middle and walking through to, uh, the whitetail's living room. But in 2016, when we said we started seeing the big animals, by trail cameras, I had probably I had two bucks. One I called uh, Louisville. And that was because his rack was the size of Louisville Slugger baseball bat. And then we had another one on our farm that I loved. To, I called him Willie, uh, Willie Nelson, because he was so high. He was a, a beautiful buck, pushing close to 200 inches. And Willie was a buck that I had pretty much, I'd say, for the first two years, I knew was here and could see how he was growing. In fact, I have pictures of him exactly a year before uh, almost to the date he came to the camera again, um, he put on 40 to 50 inches uh, in that year. And um, I had a chance to to harvest Willie, and Willie lost his right side. November 8th, I'll never forget that morning. It was just before 9 o'clock, and Willie stepped into the lane, and your heart racing, and when he turned, it was his right side, but when he had, as you see it, left side, and he turned that right side, and that right main beam was broke. My heart sank, and then you could see the gouge on Willie's just below his, uh, his spine on his right side. They definitely was into a fight, and 
I can't imagine the buck that broke that rack. I think Willie was seven and three quarters around his uh, his bases there. Oh, it was definitely over seven and a half inches. But Willie, I passed him up. And I said, you know, and I got with the neighbors. I said, hey, this, this deer needs to live. This deer needs to... Uh, to try to to try to make it. I mean, this deer has potential being well over the high two inch deer. And, and my neighbors, we all kind of had the same conception. And uh, I think it was in February, Willie showed back up on the property and found him dead. Um, don't know if it was a, a late uh, from the fight that he had when he broke his rack. The DNR seemed to believe that he took a a tine to the gland. And um, underneath there, and a lot of uh, mature whitetails can get infection, and when the winter gets bitter and cold, can do them in. Is that is that right? Well, it's the act of God again. Is it, It's tough. Yeah, nature's tough. The world's tough. Would I ever pass that buck up again? Probably not. I just, um, you know, he was a special deer, and because I was worried the package wasn't all in whole, and and I like that, but I believe that he was he was in his prime. But Willie was gone, and that left Louisville. Louisville, he, he, he eluded me so many times that you'd go get the camera, and you learn from that camera. And then, like I said, I am a huge believer that deer, you know, we hunt them way too much. We hunt deer till they know they're being hunted. And I believe that when, and I've, and I've proved this many times in Michigan, that if I'm going to be in the woods, and I learned this from some very, I was blessed to, to be uh, raised and got, cut my whitetail teeth on a man named Roger Rothar, who to me was one of the greatest bow hunter, whitetail bow hunters that walked the face of the earth. But one of the things he always said to me, you got to let deer think. They got to know that you're there. They know you're there. I mean, any, especially in farm country, any animal that he's out within 100, 200 yards, 300 yards of, of a home, of a farm, and the people out in the yard, they smell us constantly. In my yard here, I live with, with whitetails. They just know that there's a, a certain percentage of that, that scent is, is acceptable. And then there's when it's super strong, it's not acceptable. Their, their buffer zone changes, their bubble zone, I call it. And more the mature the deer the larger his bubble is, that he will not tolerate the intrusion of man. And you take a young deer and you almost got to step on him. A, a button buck, is, I will go, is probably the worst case scenario. A little guy, you got to almost uh, walk on him and, and kick him. But a mature whitetail, he might be that one of just slamming your car door at your hunting spot, not even getting out and walking to, your, to the woods to set up. That car door could be the word, the intrusion into his bubble. And it's little things like that. Again, you're hunting a different animal. But Willie, or excuse me, Louisville was like that. He was, I'd show up and he was there before I got there. Or you pull the chip in the next day and he was there after I got there. And when I would find that, I would back off. And um, I remember it was late season. And late, uh, I think it was December 26. And I remember pulling the chip. And Willie had, or excuse me, Louisville had disappeared for a while. And all of a sudden, he showed up back on my camera. And I would say that Louisville was the buck that changed my whole trophy hunting, understanding trophy whitetails, and figuring them out, trying to hunt. And that was that year that I used that strategy today, and I think has helped me successfully every year. And it came from a conversation with Mark Drury years ago when I first moved here. 
And, um, but it was about barometric pressure. And one thing about it, you know, so why does that matter? I mean, the deer lives out there. Absolutely. And if there's, but it's little things that we know ourselves. And once you start understanding barometric and understanding animal movement, it's just, it's something that gets in. It's, I don't know if it's our predator skill that hones down that the, the God given as you know, we're predators, our eyes are on the front of the head for the chase. We're, we're for the chase. Any animals with the eyes on the side of the head, it's per, peripheral vision. They're to be chased. You know, that's why I tell everybody all the time, look at my eyes. I'm a hunter. I'm meant to hunt. But um, the barometric was so important because you start knowing that feeling in the woods, why, you know, the time, that special timing when they want to move. And I'll guarantee you, I can sit here and have a room full of seasoned bow hunters or even just deer hunters, they know what I'm talking about. They know that feeling that I should be in that tree, that deer's going to move today. I can feel it, that everything everything is lining up. And it isn't by chance. You know, God has created everything that falls in order. But there's a reason, and it's that barometric. And 30.1 is the magic number. And that's exactly what was told to me. So we started. I started recording this and start paying attention to that. And the reason I'm saying that isn't that I don't have the time to get out there and spend more time in the woods. Uh, that, oh, me, hey, man, my time is very limited. It might have been more of that when I was a younger man. But today, it isn't about the time thing. It's about doing it right. And um, I, what I talked about before is knowing that a buck is there, but he's not knowing that you're there. That's the key. Now, now Louisville knew that I was there. And when I backed out of there, he made his presence back again, only because the late season, the cold had moved in. I was far from the only food source that we had. But if I would have been hunting the food source, I would have never shot Louisville before daylight or before darkness. It's just he was going to stand back and they do that. They have their staging areas. We'll get in that later sometime talking about staging areas, holding areas. But... <clears throat> They like to hold in. They'll let those does and the small bucks. But this was one of those days. And I remember I told my, my kids, hey, Louisville popped up. He said he might be in trouble. And that was December 26. I watched the weather report. Again, two things I care about is the wind, which direction is the wind, depending on which stand I'm hunting. Um, I, do, I do care about whether it's a strong wind, light wind. I do not like two things. I don't like the extreme. I don't like dead calm, and I don't like excessive wind. It's just, it seems like deer are spooky on both ends of the spectrum. Um, but anyway, they, and I think it's just for the fact is that they're paranoid. The later you get in the hunting season, they hear every little snap. They hear every little twig. And then again, when it's too rough, they know they're handicapped and they're paranoid. They're jumping at everything that moves and breaks. But what we did is December 28th, um, we had, I think it was a two, it was two degrees, and the barometric was 30.1 and rising. And I got in that stand at 12:30, and at 4:30 I put an arrow through Louisville, and that was the day that changed my whole outlook. Of um, again, trail cam was important. Now, what made that hunt important? Again, trail hunt of the trail cam, uh, knowing that Louisville was in there knowing that when if I wasn't seeing him when I was putting too much pressure. If I had a trail camera, I would have never known. I just figured I wasn't seeing him. Ah, he's a smart buck, had me figured out. But the trail camera was telling me, hey, maybe it's a little time that you're backing out of there. Um, 
you know, let the deer calm down, let them feel. And then most important, when you do find that spot and you do hunt, it's getting in and getting out without educating whitetails of being hunted. So, and that's whether, and that doesn't have to be baiting. I mean, that could be, if we hunt, I, mean, I hunt late season, I have a couple food, uh, areas that I hunt that are food sources that we have either have standing beans or I might have some standing corn that the farmer has left up. Now, it's not a baiting thing, but I do know that those animals are going to be on there. So if you choose that you're going to hunt on that, and I find in the late season that the evening time is the better time to hunt, morning time that they're on that food source and you're bumping deer again. So when I go in and, and, and hunting in the evening, I like to, to approach my stand what I call midday and early evening or early afternoon. Let's call it early afternoon. But the fact is we used to get in that old trend at, you know, two hours in the morning, hunting two hours at night. Well, the deer get used to you doing that as well. The problem with going in, especially if you're hunting a food source and you're hunting in the evening, if I go in at, at two hours before dark and I bump the younger deer, it's out in that field and they run, and they run back in. You know, they could go in and run right past 100 yards and go past that big bedded buck. Now, if, if it was early or, or late and, you know, I'm going in there, that deer might lay there and say, hmm, I'm not going to move out into that field till darkness comes. And then I'm going to wait and see if other deer go by, if more deer come through. If I were to go in early and I bump that deer, I do believe once, you know, if it was a two to three to four hours before the, the prime deer movement, I think those deer gives them enough time to settle down that they can come back and come out into the field and, and still be in a natural approach. So at the old saying, I'd rather be an hour early than a minute late. So again, watching that barometric pressure has been the key. We, uh, we shot another buck this year. Um, I hunted again, scouting, scouting from a distance. This area here was an area that I, I knew about as the food source. It was one thing that kept me there. But another thing, this was a, a, a difficult piece of land. Not that because it was large to hunt, but because how the land set. It had a small creek bottom with deep ravines and valleys, that, which Iowa is noted for. It's like our trees out here. Everything is knotty and curly, not straight. And all our ravines and creeks are straight down about 8, 10 feet and only about 10 foot wide. But this was one of those little creek bottoms and hilly all around it, a lot of CRP around it. So those deer can lay up in, up into those hills and not be detected. And this spot, it was, it was a cornfield, big cornfield that was the field had for corn. But I knew as soon as the, the half the field was, was chopped with corn, it, I knew that I was gonna be able to start seeing what movement from, it, but from a distance. Now, to show you how important, I only had a window. I would say probably about a five-yard window that my truck could pull up to be able to see because of the hilliness, but to be able to see the, the, the deer from this window down the field to where I wasn't disturbing. Now, if I were to pull the truck up and they were already out there, they would move right back into that bottom. And that, and we're talking an area that isn't even being hunted, but they are, they pick up the intrusion on them. So I happened to be out scouting geese. I got to, and, if the, and I'll tell you, if I happened to drive by and the, I could tell that there was deer out there, I would keep driving. I would pass it. Again, not letting them feel that, hey, someone's watching me. 
But I do remember I finally got one evening, got in there, and um, there was there wasn't any deer out there, and it was just perfect timing. I stopped. It's that last 15 minutes of light. A couple does came out. A big doe came out, and then that last light. Here came a giant out, and he worked and hit a scrape, and then he kind of dogged that doe a little bit. But I remember right then, I knew this is the guy I wanted to go after. It was. Uh, here's the thing. My tactic was totally different. Was that my tactic on this? Where the old me, that I'm only a bow hunter, and that I was going to go after this deer only with my bow. And if that's what you choose, hey, God love you. Because I was one of those guys that I hunted traditional. I shot an 80-pound recurve. I killed a bear with my Black Widow 80-pound. And I was total traditional. And then I shot compound for a little bit. And then later in my later years of life, just a few years ago, through a, a, a severe injury in the hand and elbow, uh, the bow wasn't able to be pulled back. And yes, I hunted with a crossbow. I thought it was taboo for years and uh, end up shooting a nice whitetail with it. I learned a huge lesson on that day, that as long as it's legal, ethical, and moral, and you eat what you kill, as legal as it is, if it wouldn't have been for that crossbow, I would have had to sit home and only remember yesteryear when I hunted with my recurve. But because of that, I was able to go out and be part of the hunt and to be able to still harvest and kill a whitetail and put food on the table for the family. So again, as long as it's legal, ethical, and moral. Well, at this time, I had the idea that I looked, and I, said, I was kind of handicapped because two-thirds of the field was, had been chopped by now. All the good uh, spots to put up for bow stands were taken. I remember discussing with my wife. I said, I've never bought an early muzzleloading tag in my life. But, you know, my wife, we're all about doing it right. I said, I'm going to get one shot at this big buck. And if I go out there, you know, and he's not within, I just happen to bang. It, it don't, he gets him within 30 yards and I don't get that shot right. I might never see this buck again. I might push him out of that bottom. And uh, so I chose and bought an early muzzleloading tag. In fact, I only had four days of muzzleloading left. But I was so confident in the scouting and in my ability and knowing that I was going to set up and put myself in the right position that I wasn't worried with only four days. My thought and, and the whole concern is just for the one opportunity. It wasn't about I want to make sure that I have two weeks of opportunity. I was setting up for only one opportunity. Big bucks pretty much give you one opportunity. So we, uh, and my, as I went in, I looked at that. We ended up putting, I put a, a, a pop-up blind in the standing corn, chopped a 10 by 10 foot area, put that blind right into the first few rows in, thashed it heavy with corn. And um, my approach, getting into the stand, probably a lot of people would have parked by the road with a farmer entrance and walked to the edge of the open field to walk straight into that corn and into their stand. But again, like I said, I'd have bumped deer that was laying, never known they were there. So um, we would go in, clear out of our way, parked clear over uh, north of the field where the truck was just off the road, walk and use the corn and then walk the corn row straight down right into my blind. And this was open day and I was so excited because the first time I got the blind made, um, it, the barometric pressure was 26 point something. And I told my wife, I said, it's not right. I'm going to wait. Two days later, we hit the 30.1, snuck in there and, and I did a little video and explained how I found this piece of property 
Um, the buck I'm after, I saw this buck. We're setting up on an individual buck, and we waited to get today. We have a perfect northwest wind, but it, it's it's a quartering wind for us that, uh, you know, it isn't 100% in my favor or 100% in his favor. It's that quartering wind. But the cool thing is we had the barometric. They're going to move. And I did the video in the blind, and 15 minutes later after the video, I shot that buck at 40 yards. Top of the heart, muzzle loader. Now, a lot of guys said, hey, you, you could have killed him with your bow. Well, maybe. I chose the muzzle loader because I chose a one-shot opportunity at going after this deer. It worked. The deer is, is grossed, you know, somewhere in the 180s. He field dressed on a, on a certified scale at 233.4 pounds. Definitely was, uh, uh, you know, we got the teeth. We're going to get the teeth cut and get him aged. But I'm going to guess he's pretty close at six and a half, seven and a half mature whitetail. Again, the barometric, being patient, waiting the wind, and making the one-shot opportunity count. So hope you enjoyed some of this. We're going to get into some more a little bit of whitetail strategies later in another podcast. But uh, always remember, hunt safe, hunt smart. And take a kid hunting. God bless. Well, folks, thank you for listening to the George Lynch Hunting Podcast Show. Brought to you by Legendary Gear, the game call company that is legend by design. Be sure to check out all of our game calls at legendarygearusa.com. Legendary Gear has superior waterfowl and turkey calls to keep you tipping toenails. Every waterfowl call is hand-tuned by myself. So hunt smart and stay safe. This is George Lynch signing off until next week on the George Lynch Hunting Podcast Show.